Let's read it together. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 12. Hear God's word to us this morning. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, actually beloved is the Greek term there, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war upon your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. It's, I really do pray he strengthens our hearts with it this morning. You may be seated. So as we dig back into 1 Peter, and we open up our roadmap as uh, pilgrims on our journey from this present world to the world that is to come. Uh, we remember that we are headed to, as Peter put it earlier, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, and it's reserved for us. We have that reservation in heaven that Jesus won for us through his death and on the cross and his resurrection. Well, in our text this morning, the reason I bring that up, I keep bringing it up every week keep it, in case you haven't noticed it. I want to keep that before you, that that's the melodic line of this epistle that, that Peter wrote, this letter. But once again, even in the verses we're going to be looking at, Paul, excuse me, Peter uses the language of strangers and aliens again. He brings this up. It's not something that I keep repeating. It's, it's on Peter's heart and mind. It's something that obviously, if he keeps repeating it, he wants us to be aware of it and keep it in the forefront of our minds, not in the back of our minds as God's people. And so we're dealing once again with the very fact of our identity in Christ as aliens and strangers here. And it makes me think of these, a group of Christians who decided to visit the Middle East. I love this story. They were, um, they were told about this really wise, devout, seasoned old saint, a believer, who had walked with Christ many years and he had lots of wisdom. So they went out of their way to, to visit this older gentleman, this older Christian man. And when they finally found him, uh, they were kind of uh, shocked by the way that he lived. He had like a cot, a chair, a table, and an old beat up stove that he used to heat stuff up 
uh, to cook with and things. And they, they said to him, uh, where's your furniture? And the, the aged saint replied by gently asking them, well, where's yours? And they, they kind of sputtered in their answer and they kind of said, well, ours, it's at home, of course. Uh, I don't carry it with me. I'm traveling. So am I, the godly Christian man said, so am I. And uh, Peter wants us to have that same perspective in our lives, that, uh, that same awareness of our identities as sojourners uh, in this world. The same attitude that that old wise believer had um, in the Middle East, we should all have. That shouldn't be a special quality. Um, he's already made it clear, the Apostle Peter, that although God has blessed us, uh, with great encouragement in Jesus along the way, he made it very clear so we wouldn't misunderstand him as some preachers apparently do, that our journey will not be without difficulties in Christ and as sojourners. They, they won't, our journey will not be without troubles and hardships. Um, he's already referred to the trials that uh, Christian pilgrims will have to face in chapter 1, verse 6, if you remember, um, that the testing of our faith and the purpose um, so that it would be proved genuine when Jesus comes to his praise. Well, now in chapter 2, verses 4 to 12, he reminds us once again that our journey home uh, is not going to be a walk in the park um, by any stretch of the imagination. In other words, this is important to see. It's something that uh, the Bible reminds us of again and again, so we can't say we missed it. Coming to genuine faith in Christ, that is, obeying the gospel, that's the way Peter has been putting it throughout his epistle, doesn't end our struggle uh, against our sinful natures. And it doesn't end our battle with the worldliness and the world around us. Actually, what Peter is saying is it's going to intensify it. Because you're now on the winning side. You now belong to Christ. You now identify with Christ. You will receive the same suffering and the same rejection that he did to some degree, without a doubt. You know, and that's why in our hearts as believers, I, I bring up this hymn a lot too because um, it just rings so true deep within. Um, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come, right? Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and what grace will lead me home? Now, you, you hear that, you might think, dangers? <laughs> you know, we live in comfy America. Toils, snares? What Peter's saying here, just like our Pete, he says this a lot too. You betcha. For sure. It's exactly what uh, I'm saying. Peter doesn't just warn us that they're coming, though. He charges us to be intentional in heading them off at the pass. That's what chapter 2, verses 4 to 12 is all about. I want you to look with me at verses 11 and 12, because they're not only... Um, an introduction to the next section of the epistle that Peter will, Pete will start dealing with uh, in the weeks to come, but it actually is the conclusion, the punchline of everything that went before. So look at verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. That sounds like a good fight to me. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's the punchline. That's the conclusion. That's the great crescendo, musically speaking, of the text this morning. The Holy Spirit is exhorting us 
to engage in spiritual warfare on two fronts. That's what I, I saw here that I thought was really interesting. There's two fronts that we need to fight. And the one is sin within, sin from within. Uh, natural desires that become sinful desires because we, we uh, channel them in wrong ways. Uh, so the sin from within, and then the, un the battle against the unbelieving world from without. Um, Peter's going to deal with the third front, our enemy, the devil, later on in the epistle. But right now he's dealing with inward sin that we have to fight and outward persecution. And um, those who would try to conform us into the mold of worldliness. So what we're going to see in this text this morning is that as we make our way from this present world to the world which is to come, we must fight the good fight of faith against sin within and the unbelieving world from without. So I'm going to say that again. We must fight the good fight um, against sin from within and the unbelieving world from without. And we're going to see two things as we look at this text. It's a two-pointer. You should be happy about that, some of you. Um, First, we're going to see our great encouragement in the good fight of faith. And then we're going to see our great engagement in the good fight of faith. Those are the two things. So let's take a look at the first one, our great encouragement in the battle. And brothers and sisters, we're going to need that encouragement. If we're serious about uh, Jesus and, 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 and seeing how precious, valuing him uh, as precious as he is and being faithful to him by faith and uh, by trusting and obeying, then we're going to need this encouragement. And Peter gives us that kind of encouragement in spades here in this text. Look what it says in verse 4. As you come to him, that's Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says... See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, I got, this was just like an explosion of insight for me. It's such a joy to see this. Um, I, want, I want to tie this, because when I first looked at it, I thought, as you come to him, living stone, where is this coming from? How does this connect with what Peter was saying before? Well, if you notice what Peter said before, the very verse before, he says, um, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, now he's telling us, as you come to him, come to who? The Lord, who is good. So he is identifying Jesus as the Lord. That's incredible. He's, he's confirming what we all know, that Jesus is indeed the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is the Lord. And um, he is the one that we have tasted is good. As you come to him, he's saying, um, he is the living stone rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him. So this is what Peter is pointing out, why he's pointing it out to these believers and to us today through them, is that this, Jesus is chosen by God. He's precious to God, but notice something here. He's rejected by men. And Peter goes to the Old Testament scriptures to prove that this would be the case with the Christ, Jesus himself who fulfilled it. And what, what, there's an analogy being made here, which we can't miss. Even so, what Peter is saying is, you may be rejected by men, just like your Savior. So don't be surprised, because you too are chosen by God. You too are precious to him, and you're being built on Jesus, the chief headstone or cornerstone of the spiritual house. 
That's the analogy that Peter is clearly making. See, because when I was studying this text, I'm like, is this about Jesus or is this about us? <laughs> That's what I, I was debating. Where's Peter going with this? And then, of course, I realized that Jesus is the head of his church. And so when you're talking about Jesus, because we're so united to him, you're also talking about us. That's the analogy. Just as he is the living stone, we are now living stones in Jesus, our head, united to him by faith. Jesus is a living stone. Believers, too, are like living stones being built up into a house, a spiritual house. And what Peter is showing here is that just as Jesus was rejected by men, but chose, chosen and precious to God, so are you. In other words, it comes with the territory, the hardship, the persecution, the, the, um, the persecution from the world, the world trying to woo you into its mold. And if that doesn't work, it'll try pressure. Um, that's what it did with Jesus. That's what's going to do with us. And Peter wants to point that out. And I always think of the song written by my buddy Matt Bissonette and his friend. Uh, I think of the line that says, you might nail me to the tree. It just puts me in good company. That's what Peter's saying. You're in good company. Don't fret. Don't worry. Don't be nervous. Don't wonder if God loves you when you face troubles and hardship. As a matter of fact, it just shows that God loves you because that's what the world will do to those whom God choose, chooses and those whom God uh, deems precious in his son, Jesus Christ. So if you face persecution, what Peter is saying, this is the encouragement to me, it's an encouragement to you. If you face exclusion and mocking and suffering uh, from the world because of your faith in Christ, Peter's saying that's okay, you're in good company. And look what he says in verse 9. He says, you are God's special people, just like Jesus is. And like living stones, you're being built into a spiritual house. And this is what Peter wants us to know. We may be a peculiar people. And I'll tell you, the church could be pretty weird at times. Um, we may be assailed by imposters within, claiming to be Christians and ruining our name to some degree. We may be assailed by enemies without, but we are the holy temple where God dwells on earth in a special way. And all this nonsense about waiting to end times for the physical brick and mortar uh, building to be built again, temple to be built again in Jerusalem. Please, brothers and sisters, I'm not making this stuff up. I'm not spiritualizing. Peter is making it very clear here. The church of Jesus Christ made up of believing Jew and Gentile. We are the temple. This is it made up of Jew and Gentile from every tribe, tongue, and nation that believe in Jesus, we are the dwelling place. We are being built by God to be his house. Remember Jesus said, I will build my church? That's what's being talked about. And remember, he said it to Peter. So Peter remembers this. It's fresh for him when he wrote this. And then not only are we a spiritual house, but we are special people within the spiritual house. What a great twist here. He says, you are uh, being built up to be a spiritual house to be what? a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are the priests. In the new covenant, there are no uh, priests in the sense of pastors are not priests. Elders are not priests. Deacons are not priests. Guess who the priests are? You. 
and me, all of us as believers, we are a royal priesthood and we now offer up sacrifices through Jesus that, that's, that are acceptable to God. The kind that he takes and he goes, hmm, great, uh, uh, what do you call it? Cross-reference, what do you call it? In Hebrews 13, 15 to 16. Through Jesus, we read it earlier, therefore, let us continue off to offer to God a sacrifice of what? What are our, our sacrifices now through Jesus? A sacrifice of praise, the fruits of lips that confess his name, and do not forget to do good and share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Why is that a powerful cross-reference? Because that's precisely the plan that Peter lays out for sojourners, for believers, in this passage. There's two things we are to do. We are to declare God's praises through Jesus, and we're to do good, to give God honor and glory, and that the world would see how good God is, and that many would come to know him. And that's incredible encouragement on in our the fight the good fight of faith he says we are to do this to declare his praises and to do good he goes on to say this in verse 7 now to you who believe the stone is precious oh is jesus precious to you today but to those who do not believe the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall and then Peter adds, they stumble because they disobey the message. Notice that Peter keeps saying it. Either you obey the message or you disobey the message. And then in this case, which is also what they were destined for. The word there in the Greek is appointed for. Here's the thing, says the great apostle. Jesus is the living stone that the builders rejected. And according to the scriptures of the Old Testament, he quotes from Psalm 118. The stone they rejected has become the headstone or, or the capstone of the building that God is building. And then he quotes again from the Old Testament, this time Isaiah 8, and he says, Jesus is a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Remember when Jesus said, um, I'll have to look up the reference, but in the Gospels, Jesus said, blessed is he who does not stumble, does not take offense on my account. What I want us to see here, which is really important before we move on, is that Peter, just like Jesus, just like our Lord and Savior, views the Old Testament scriptures as the authoritative word of God himself. And he backs up all this, almost everything he's saying here with the Old Testament scriptures. And he does that for us New Covenant people. So uh, uh, Dave Cohen and I often talk about this. Um, you know, when people hand out New Testaments, I mean, I get it. It's certainly New Testament is the word of God, but I think many times that sends the wrong message. You don't divorce the New Testament from the Old Testament. Our Bible is, is a complete Bible when it has Old and New Testaments. It's all God-breathed. It's all scripture. And the apostles and Jesus himself could have just kept saying, it's what I say, it's what I say. But they constantly taught us a lesson, keep going back to the scriptures. And that's exactly what Peter does here, and he points out this deep implication of the Old Testament quotes that he brings up. He talks about those who rejected uh, the living stone, Jesus, and he says they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they are destined for. Now, we could spend a lot of time on this in terms of deep theology, but what I want to bring to your attention is this, because this 
There's no debate about this that, that Peter's saying, you see, pilgrim, sojourner in this world, you've been destined for a glorious future, for inheritance that cannot perish, fade, uh, uh, fade uh, or be destroyed. It's waiting for you. It's a glorious uh, future. But those who reject the cornerstone have quite a different destiny. And we would do well to remember that when they try to entice us, whether it's through worldly rewards or worldly pains or persecutions, to join them in their rejection. We need to remember that way is not leading to the new city that is to come. That way is leading to an appointed end of destruction and of judgment. But notice the contrast. But you! So keep your head in the game. Keep your uh, head in the fight. Look at verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. These words, again, we could spend so much time on chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation. At the least of what we see here is that we are the new Israel, made up of Jew and Gentile. The church of Jesus Christ is now a holy nation among all the nations, a people who belong to God. Who are the people of God today? Is there a particular nation that can say, we are God's nation? No, it's the church. According to this text, we're a holy nation. We're a royal priesthood. And no, we're not a geographical nation with a worldly government and such. We're a spiritual nation scattered throughout the nations on earth. Now look at this. God has chosen us for a very particular purpose. What's the purpose, my brothers and sisters? It's that we might declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now listen. That's why God has given us mercy in Christ. That's why he's given us mercy sheerly out of his unmerited favor. That's why he's building us into a spiritual temple, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to him for the very purpose that we might declare his praises because he is worthy, worthy, worthy. He's glorious. Wayne Grudem puts it this way, seeking our own eternal well-being, right though that is, could never provide a truly satisfying goal for life. The answer to our search for ultimate meaning lies in declaring the excellencies of God, for he alone is infinitely worthy of glory. Redemption is ultimately not man-centered, but God-centered. When I first came to Christ, some of you heard my testimony, I'll never forget when, I, when God finally revealed that to me. It's not about me. It's not about seeking my fulfillment or my pleasure, but it's all about that he has now forgiven me and he has given me new life in Christ and I am his chosen and precious child. And what a great purpose now that I have to live for is to show how awesome and glorious and worthy Jesus is. Because think about that. That's what every single human being in this world is chasing after something, looking for something that they think is worthy to exalt, to promote. And ultimately, the only person, the only thing worth promoting in this whole world is the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the sinless, perfect, holy, mighty, glorious one. 
He gives us this ultimate incentive for declaring the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We have so much to be thankful for. Once we were out, not included, not included in the chosen holy royal people of God, but now we're his. Now we're in. Once we were not recipients of the divine mercy, but now we have received God's mercy. Think about it this way, pilgrim, on your way home. In Christ, God has not given you what you deserve. And every day, he continues to not give you what you deserve. And that's enough to propel us all the way to glory. So we would spread his praises far and wide. I like the hymn writer. You've heard me quote this before, but I'm going to quote it again. Savior, if of Zion City, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity. I will glory in thy name. And in this wonderful stanza, fading is the worldling's pleasure. All is boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. See, to us, Jesus is precious. And a lot of times in this life, when we feel like it, I think, I believe, when we feel like we're missing something, um, there's two reasons for that. But one reason is because we have not been uh, drinking deeply of the gospel and worshiping Jesus and finding our all and all in him and holding him to be precious and realizing we already have the gem that the rest of the world is looking for, the pearl of great price. And the second reason is we'll never fully be satisfied until we're in glory and there's no longer the good fight to fight from within and without. So it puts us in good company when those uh, who reject the living stone Jesus and don't see his infinite value also reject us. We have deep encouragement to know we're in good company uh, and to fight the good fight. And the last and second point, much shorter than my first, is really the punchline. Um, our great engagement in the battle. So we saw the great encouragement, living stones, being built into a house, a holy priesthood, receiving mercy, being a uh, included in the people of God. But let's look at what the engagement in, in the battle, the good fight looks like. So stick with me just a couple more moments, and I believe it's going to be a great spiritual payoff for you and for your soul. Verses 11 and 12, once again, and we'll, we'll deal with them for a couple moments. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. What Peter is saying is this. He says, beloved, those I love deeply, I plead with you. That's the word there, I urge you in the Greek is a very strong like pleading. Like I beg you. For your own good, for God's glory, as temporary residents, as pilgrims in the world, I beg you to engage in a two-sided battle, one inward and the other outward, one negative, what not to do, and one positive. In other words, this, not that, okay? First, he talks about the inward to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Now, a word we don't like in our culture, I don't think simple nature ever liked it, abstinence, <laughs> right? 
Not the most popular or beloved word, yet this is precisely what Peter prescribes for the sojourning people of God. He tells us to abstain from, don't participate in, fleshly desires or sinful desires. You know, abstinence isn't a bad thing when you're saying, you know, I want to. I think I'm going to abstain from arsenic. You know, we, all of a sudden that's a good word, isn't it? I want to abstain from poison. I want to abstain from things that are going to be harmful. And what Peter is saying here is this stuff is literally um, warring against your soul. When you engage in it, it's just it's chipping away at your soul and it's doing spiritual damage. Now, these sinful desires are universal. So that's what makes them so uh, difficult to deal with. Um, all the sons of Adam, all the daughters of Eve have them coursing through their veins. And the world around these believers who were scattered throughout Turkey and Asia Minor, um, throughout, uh, the world around that, those believers is what I want to say, didn't fight against those desires, but they lived by this motto. If it feels good, if it's natural, do it. If, if it comes natural, just give in to it. That's what their motto was. Now, that should sound somewhat unfortunately familiar to us because our culture today is absolutely saturated with that belief. If people have um, an overwhelming regular urge to any kind of sexual desire out of God's design of marriage between one man and one woman, they, see, they say things like this. I'm so sick of hearing it. I have to be true to myself. Or my favorite one, I have to speak my truth. Even worse, people will say, God made me this way. Listen, I'm here to tell you, Peter's here to tell you, God made no one that way. It's not true. These inordinate desires are a consequence. Here's what's so important for us to understand this distinction. These sinful desires are a consequence not of creation, right? God made all things good. Even sex is a good thing in marriage, but they're actually... Um, a consequence of the fall when we sinned against the word of God, when we sinned against God and his authority, that's when these desires went haywire. And Peter says, yes, the world that rejected the, the chosen one, the one who's precious to God, says don't fight those desires, delight in them, go with them, satisfy them. But the Holy Spirit through Peter here says, fight them with all that's in you. Everything you got, everything God gives you, all his resources. And the way you fight these things is you avoid them like the plague. Because these fleshly desires war against your very souls. Now look, the world around us will call us prudes. They'll mock our abstinence as outdated morality left over from a repressive age. But here's the, the, the funny thing. We've got we to gotta call them on the hypocrisy. At the same time, they're quick to point out any seeming inconsistency in our walk of faith in order to discredit the truth. In other words, they'll tell us, no, it's good to give in, but sure, they're the first people to point out that Christians aren't living up to their, their ideals and try to woo us to their side and mock us. And that's why the second aspect and last aspect 
of fighting the good fight is so important. And that's in verse 12. Live, good, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So abstain from the sinful desires, but do engage in good works in the world. Peter's saying is that our, what Peter's saying is our greatest weapon against their accusations um, is to have a deep, thorough knowledge of apologetics. No, that's not what it is. It's good deeds that can't be faulted. Because, look, believers, they can't fault good deeds. And if they tried it, even other unbelievers can't fault good deeds. And even if they did try, other unbelievers would say, hey, now that's not reasonable. But I want to show you something here. Well, I want to just point out what Peter is saying. Here we see God's heart for the lost, the sinful world around us. He has a purpose for us doing these good deeds, not so that we will condemn the world, not so that we will pay them back evil for evil, but that they might see our good deeds and do what? Glorify God on the day he visits us. In other words, holy, godly lives that usher forth in good deeds have a winsome effect that attract people to Jesus and his church. Now, Peter doesn't say our good deeds will save people, but only that, because only the gospel has the power to do that. Peter already mentioned a few passages earlier that we've been born again through what? The living and enduring word of God. God had to give us new birth through his gospel. And the gospel needs to be explained and proclaimed for sure. Later on, he's going to tell us to make sure we always have the reason. We can give the reason for the hope we have. But here, what he's saying is that the new life expressed in abstaining from sinful desires and engaging in doing good will be a magnetic force in drawing people to the only person who can save their eternal souls and, and reserve a place for them in the new city that is to come. So that And, and to transform them into those who are headed to destruction to those who are pilgrims making great progress to the world which is to come. In other words, let me get real practical here. As we love each other, as we care for the least and the lost in society, as we minister to the broken and discarded, as we serve the poor, the sick, those who are marginalized by society, even non-Christians will recognize the goodness of God being demonstrated through his people. And I know I know that sometimes I fall into the trap of wanting uh, the gratitude of those I serve. And it upsets me when I don't see some kind of gratitude. But the, the, the beauty of this here is we don't have to look for that. Whether we get gratitude or not, we're glorifying Jesus. And that's our main point, main purpose. That's what God calls us to do. So as we end our time in the Word this morning, thank you for taking this couple extra moments with me. I want to ask you, have you come to grips with the truth of who you are in Christ? Chosen by God, precious to Him, because you're united to the precious one, the Christ, the living stone. You order your life around the fact that you are a stranger here, making your way home to your Father's heavenly, eternal kingdom. And here's the question, it's the real question. Is Jesus precious to you? For some of us, yeah, he's been very precious, but as time has gone on, it's began to come to a lower ebb or the flame is beginning to get lower. And Peter is reminding us of how glorious Jesus is, how awesome he is, and the mercy we received in him to stoke that flame 
that passion that maybe some of us are beginning to lose or have lost about just how precious Jesus is. He's the only one who can take away our sins. He's the only one who could bring us safely to the heavenly kingdom. And he's the only one who could work what is pleasing in his sight in our lives so that the people around us, even our enemies, some of them, will come to know him so that when, when he does come back, they will glorify God and not be judged by God. Brothers and sisters, there's so much more I could say. We're, we're going to end it here. Um, I, I'm going to have some leftover notes I might bring to you later. I'll put them up online for you. Um, but for now, let me just close with that. And let me just say to anyone who's listening, if you haven't yet uh, come to the precious stone, um, God exhorts you with open arms to come to the living stone so that you too could be a part of his people who have received mercy and be built into a spiritual house um, that you too might glory in the precious stone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there are so many things, so many fights in this world, so many races to be run, but because of Jesus, we have the pleasure and the privilege of fighting the good fight, a fight worth fighting, that we have the joy of uh, walking on that pilgrim highway that we know for sure where it leads. And Father, we thank you. It's your grace and your mercy that keeps us. And as we do fight, we know it's only because your spirit and your mercy and your grace in Christ is working mightily in us. But God, our heart's desires, we truly desire that our neighbors, our friends, our enemies would see your goodness even through our feeble efforts to do good. Uh, not that we would get glory, not that people would think we're good, but that they might know that you are and that Jesus is the world's one and only Savior, the living uh, cornerstone. We pray it in his name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.